Hey, happy Valentine's Day. <clears throat> My name's Eric. I'm one of the one of the pastors here, and uh, you know, I was uh, I have to. There's gonna be a lot of confessing going on in in this uh, message this morning, and I want to start by confessing. Uh, that I did not get my wife a Valentine's Day card. Which I think is okay. We'll find out later. But <clears throat> I was talking to her yesterday, you know, we were talking about Valentine's Day, and I said, you know, um, I said, uh, I think I'm still having, like, you know, recovering from the stress of Valentine's Day in elementary school because it was stressful for me. We started talking about it because then she informed me. She said, you know, and she said, did you notice that, like, you know, I've got two kids. Uh, my daughter's about to graduate. But, like, when my kids went to school, you know, you had to send Valentine's Day cards with them. And you had to send as many cards. Whoa, it just got really dark. Um, you had to send as many Valentine's Day cards as there were kids in, in the class, right? Yeah. Anybody do this? Yeah. Was it that way when I was a kid, right? Like, you didn't know you could get five Valentine's. You didn't know, you know, you could get a Valentine's Day card from the girl that ate paste, you know? And you're like, guys, I want a Valentine's Day card from her. You know, this is, this is not an easy thing. to. I don't have fond memories associated with Valentine's Day. But here we are. It's February 14th. Did anybody uh, drop their kids off on Friday and do the little date night thing? Yes? How was that? Was it good? Yeah, awesome. I love that they, they do that. I think um, it's a great, great thing that, that we do. If you have um, kids next year, you know, just pay attention to that. It's a great, off, it's a great gift that we give uh, parents in our community to be able to do that. So um, <clears throat> we are here today, and as Dan talked, uh, talked earlier, we're starting a series on the seven deadly sins, at which point everybody in the building is like, oh, no. Like, we're going to talk about sin for seven or six weeks, you know, and, and uh, I was trying to think about how to present this maybe in a culturally current way, and so I went on the internets, and they are so helpful, because you might be having this reaction to talking about the seven deadly sins, or you might have this reaction, it's my favorite. I love Beaker, or you might have this reaction, promised a church, promised, promised complimentary coffee, but got the seven deadly sins instead. Or you just might be, okay. Or you might be this. This might be your reaction. One does not simply talk about the seven deadly sins. I made that. <clears throat> I'm so addicted to memes right now. Like, if you want a meme, just like text me in a conversation, you're likely to get, I'm like, this is, how did I take so long to discover the world of memes? So get ready if you know me, because there's one coming your way. So the seven deadly sins, you know, they're not pleasant to talk about. It's not fun to sit there and talk about sin. And you might have a lot of baggage about uh, talking about something, you know, this heavy and this weighty, especially for six weeks. You know, we at E3 try to talk about uh, the emphasize the love and the relational aspect of God. And that is all very, very, very true. It's, it's very much a part of who God is. Um, but sin and brokenness is a part of our life. And um, in particular, it's, it's, it has a pretty, pretty serious consequences. And so what I want to do today is hopefully present a fresh hearing 
for talking about the seven deadly sins. I want to challenge you maybe to not look at this series as an opportunity as uh, I was hinted at this week to go get brunch for six weeks instead of going to church. <laughs> I want to challenge you to maybe open your mind and your heart and your, your spirit to, um, to taking a hard look at your life through the filter of these uh, seven sins. Now, <clears throat> a couple, couple of housekeeping notes before we go too far. Uh, the seven deadly sins actually do not appear as such cleanly in Scripture. You know, on your fridge fold, I indicated two Scriptures, Proverbs 6, Galatians 5. That's about as close as we get to some kind of laundry list of sins, but there's not seven of them, and they don't correspond to the seven that have traditionally emerged over time. Um, you can blame the category of seven deadly sins on this man, his name is Evagrius Ponticus, and he looks like just a really cool dude. Got the little halo thing going on, which I'm hoping to get one of these days. E3 staff pictures, all with the halos. I think it'd be great. Um, so Evagrius was um, a Christian uh, monk, church leader in the fourth century. He's born in 345 AD. About, uh, I think he was born somewhere I think maybe closer to what is maybe Syria or, or Turkey, but at any rate, he, he comes to Jerusalem around 380 AD. And uh, by 390 or 385, he's left Jerusalem and he goes out into the desert of Egypt. And he's what's called, uh, he's, a, he's what's called a, a desert father. In the early centuries of the church, there were desert fathers and de desert mothers. And what uh, they were were these men and women who went out to the desert to do battle with the deepest parts of their soul and their spirit. So Evagrius uh, dies in 399. So he doesn't live a whole uh, long time, but he probably spends somewhere along 10 to 12 years in the desert. And he is the one who writes eventually that there are seven buckets of brokenness, so to speak, that mess with your soul and your spirit. And as kind of a side note, you know, sometimes it's easy to, to characterize people who go out into the desert as people who want to like, they can't deal with the real world, so they go out to, to the desert where, where it's easier to live. And what the desert mothers and the desert fathers all discovered was that the desert is the last place you go if you want an easy life. Because not only is the desert harsh and the desert's cold and hot and hard to survive in, but just like it is in our culture today, when you go away from the city, when you turn down the noise of the culture around you and you go out to where things are more quiet and you still your soul a little bit and the, the waters of your soul like a pond kind of get still, that's when you discover the real dark places in your spirit. And so the desert mothers and the desert fathers of Agrius and these other folks, they go out to the desert because they, they want to live life the way Jesus has called them to live and they get out in the desert and they're like, oh man, once you really turn down the noise on life, you really, really see the truth of who you are. You know, 
Um, I went to a, a monastery a few weeks back, uh, spent a couple of days in silence. And let me tell you, you don't go to places of silence and solitude. When you get there, the bluebirds don't land on your shoulder. You don't have this blissful encounter where you're just like, oh man, you know, like I feel so, just so together with Jesus. That's not often the way it works. You get quiet, you get to places of silence and solitude, and actually what you see is a lot of the difficulties and the ugliness of your own spirit. So you wanna get real serious about like who you are as a human being? You go to the desert. So Evagrius goes out there and he discovers the truth of who he is as a human being. And he just writes, look, man, there's these seven major areas of life that will mess you up, right? And we call them the seven deadly sins. And, and over the centuries of the church, different theologians and church leaders categorize them different way. They kind of take their final form around the Middle Ages with a guy named Thomas Aquinas. Um, but here's the deal. We call them the seven deadly sins. I don't know that that language is really, really helpful for us today because frankly, uh, at this point, you know, I don't know if people take the seven deadly sins all that serious. You know, there's, there's shows that are, that are created uh, out there in the world. Uh, this guy named Morgan Spurlock has a show on Showtime called The Seven Deadly Sins. Anybody heard of this show? Just a couple years ago, right? You wanna get really depressed, go investigate like how the culture deals with the seven deadly sins, you know? Because there's people out there, um, and this is not a bad people out there type of thing, but there's just people in there who, who have just decided to kind of explore, maybe not intentionally, explore how far they can take a, seven, a, a, a sin, you know? And it's just kind of weird to, to watch, you know, people that that becomes their reality. I think rather than seven deadly sins, the, the seven, which is kind of like talking about the Nazgul and Lord of the Rings, the nine, we have the seven, which that's the second Lord of the Rings reference, if you're counting, I am. Um, another way to, to refer to the seven is as the seven capital sins or the seven cardinal sins. Anybody ever heard them referred to that way? Cardinal or capital. And the reason they're called that is what the theologians and the scholars of the church have decided is that over time, these buckets of, of sin, pride, envy, lust, sloth, you know, gluttony, uh, so on and so forth, every other sin stems from these. Every other manner of brokenness that you find in your life actually comes back to one of these root seven. So, that's, uh, that's why they're so important. They're deadly not because if you commit something, if you have a problem with lust, there's not a lightning bolt that's gonna come out of the sky and zap you. You know, a wall's not gonna fall on you if you commit a deadly sin. That's not the way they work. But they will erode your soul. And if you play with them long enough, a part of you will die. One of my favorite quotes, um, I feel like it might be Emerson or Wordsworth, but I could be wrong, uh, said something along the lines of, sow in action and reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Anybody ever heard that? What it gets at is this idea that we do these things in our life, particularly maybe things that are associated with these seven sins, and we think of them as just an action here or an action there. 
But over time, an action can become a habit. And over time, things can go beyond being just a habit and can become part of who you are. And then who you are can actually become your destiny if left unchecked. <clears throat> so in that sense, the seven deadly sins or the seven capital sins or the seven cardinal sins are super serious business. Because if you stay with this stuff and you play with it and it stays in your life for too long, they go from just being things you do to things that you are, which isn't pleasant to think about, at least in my world. So Evagrius does it. We, we, we have these essentially uh, these seven things that are super serious uh, and we're gonna take a look at them for six weeks. And what I wanna do before we talk about the specific sin that I wanna deal with today, which is gluttony, I wanna just come at this idea of why again are we doing this? Are we gonna do this just so that we can feel bad about ourselves, so we can beat ourselves up every Sunday or is there another reason? And um, I wanna to suggest to you two reasons why I, wanna, why I really wanna talk about the seven deadly sins. And uh, the first has to do with this thing that I'm just gonna call masks. Uh, the church is full of people who wear masks. You know, we come in this room every, every week or some of us go to growth groups every week and, and what we really do is we wear masks. And let me explain to you what I mean. Uh, I love coffee cups. I used to collect them. I used to steal them. Like if I was at a restaurant, had a really cool cup, and if it was like big and ceramic like this, it's not one of the seven deadly sins, seven coffee cups. Right? If it was like big and ceramic, it was probably, it might be coming out, but this is, I bought this one, right? So don't stress. By the way, do you notice how unsexy the seven deadly sins actually are? Like, if I was creating a list of seven big things never to do, wouldn't it be like, hey, never blow up, you know, buildings? Hey, never, like, do, never do, like, white-collar crime that can destroy an entire economy. Never, you know, I don't know, never become a dictator. Don't be, you know... Like the, the big things that, we, that everybody could go, oh yeah, that's a good one. I would never do that. The, the interesting thing about the seven is that, man, these are everyday things. These are not things that have a big like label on their forehead that says, don't do me because this will really jack up your spirit. Because every, everyone's like, oh, a little envy, a little pride. Nothing wrong with that, right? The seven are really tricky, man. They're really tricky. Okay, so coffee cups. So since this, it's not a seven deadly sin to steal a coffee cup, you know, I have all these coffee cups and this is one of my favorites. This is my favorite. Uh, it's from a coffee shop that I used to go to all the time um, when I lived in Chicago. I love it. And it's a really cool coffee cup. Except you know something? I know something about this coffee cup that you do not know. And that is that this coffee cup has a hairline crack in it. Can you see the crack? No, you can't. But from there, you don't know, you don't know this crack. This coffee cup looks perfectly fine to you, doesn't it? But it's got a crack in it. Right? Uh, 
I don't know if you've ever spent any time around, you know, recovery programs or 12-step programs or AA or anything like that, but one of the brilliant gifts that AA gives to people is whenever you want to speak in, a, in an AA meeting or recovery meeting, there's this phrase, maybe you've seen it in a movie or a TV show, where someone will begin to speak and they will say, hey, my name's Eric and I am an alcoholic or an addict. And in that little moment, 12-step groups and recovery groups get something that the church struggles with, and that is people need to take off masks. So in a, in a, in a 12-step meeting, people are just like, it's not, it doesn't serve me any purpose to hide behind anything, so let me just tell you who I am. I'm an addict. I have a crack. I might look like I have it all together, but guess what? It doesn't matter what you can see. Let me tell you the truth about me. I am fill in the blank. And I wish the church had more of a, of a mentality of just saying, hey, my name is Eric and I'm a sinner. My name is Eric, I'm broken. My name is Eric, I have, I have a crack. It doesn't matter if I have a job title that says pastor. It doesn't matter what I appear to you to be or to have. My name is Eric and I am imperfect. You see, what I love about talking about the seven deadly sins is it's an opportunity for us to take off the masks that we come in here wearing all the time. That, that, that we're all together. Or even more, even more uh, subtle, the feeling that we come in here and we know that we're broken, but we look at everybody else and we go, but they're Okay because they serve coffee and they do all this stuff. So they must be the good pe people and I'm the bad person. But guess what? They have cracks too. There's not a person you lock eyes with in here or out there or at E3 Kids or in J-High, probably especially in J-High, that doesn't have some significant cracks, <laughs> right? And some of you guys are even like this, right? Some of you guys might come in to E3 on a Sunday and you think you're like, you're like this. You're like, I'm all together. Don't worry, I'm all together. And other people are looking at you and you're like, bro, uh, I don't, you got a little, like a little something going on. Like, and you're like, no, no, I'm all together. Some of you guys think you're hiding and you're not. We're all just shattered, fractured, broken people. That's okay, when we start talking about the seven deadly sins, it's the gift of us to say, you know what? It doesn't matter if my, if my fracture is hairline or if my fracture looks like this because we're all the same. My name is Eric and I'm broken, right? Now, because of my line of work, being a pastor, occasionally I'll sit down with a, a man or a woman and they will decide that they want to get real and they want to take off the mask finally. You know, I call those conversations last 10% conversations. When someone is willing to say, let me tell you the last 10% of my life. Let me tell you how deep the rabbit hole goes. You know, I love those conversations. A lot, a lot of times there's tears. You know, they'll cry, I'll cry. And 
and they'll unburden themselves and they'll hang on the precipice between, uh, you're right on that precipice of shame, right on that precipice of going like, oh my gosh, I just told another human being how ugly my world actually is, right? And you know what I love to say to those people at that time? I've said it a couple, couple times to people in this community. They'll tell me, this is how deep it goes. This is how fractured I am. And my response to them is usually, welcome to the human race. Because to be human is to be fractured. To be human is to be broken. Every person in this, wor- in this room and in this world whether they have a hairline fracture or whether they're shattered is in the same boat. That's what it means to be human. That's how we help each other unless we stay behind these masks. So like when everybody admits that they're broken, masks no longer serve a purpose, do they? I don't need to hide because the same thing I've got, you've got. So let's just take off the masks and get real with each other and join the human race. One of my favorite songwriters, singers, is a guy named Peter Gabriel. And he wrote uh, this song that has been uh, just, man, it just cemented itself into my soul. About a decade and a half ago, he wrote a song called Digging in the Dirt. And uh, it's about looking at the dark places in your life. It's a phrase that I love, man, digging in the dirt. And the chorus of the song goes, I'm digging in the dirt, stay with me, I need support. I'm digging in the dirt to find the places I got hurt. And I've carried with me that image, like that's when I'm doing deep soul work on my own, that's the image, man, I gotta go deep. I gotta dig a a hole, I gotta dig a hole, I gotta dig in the dirt of my soul so I can find the places that I got hurt. And here's the deal. Uh, I don't dig holes so I can dig myself a grave to bury myself in, and neither should you. You dig a hole and you dig in the dirt so you can find the place where you need to get healed. So as we go through this series, we're gonna be digging in some dirt. Can I tell you? All right, we're gonna get, we're gonna get deep and we're gonna get blunt and we're gonna take off the masks and take off the gloves. Not so that you can have shame, but so that you can realize you are human and you are loved But one of the first things we need to do is start taking off our masks and telling people and showing each other, here's who I really am so I can get about the business of healing. One last word about this. The thing about the seven deadly sins and the seven capital sins, this is not a series about what's out there. It's not a series about what's out there in culture, how rotten the culture is. It's also not a series about about out there being like that person in your growth group that has all the seven deadly sins and I can't wait till we get to that week, that person, and boy, they're gonna hit. No. This is about in here. This is about you looking at yourself. Actually, this is about me looking at myself because I'm human and I got my fractures and brokenness just like you. All right, so that's the first reason. We need to take off our masks. The second reason we need to take, we need to take some time and study this stuff is, uh, <laughs> is because there's good news, right? 
So like I said, this thing has a hairline crack in it, hairline fracture. You, you can't see it, but it's there. This thing is shattered. This thing, best I can, best I can tell, has no fractures in it and is not shattered. This is a whole coffee cup. This is an old E3 cup. Our truth might be that we are fractured, but there is, there is a destiny that we have that is whole. There is a vision for our lives that is whole, okay? Let me show you what I mean. Um, we gotta go back for some review. We gotta remember who we are and where we're going. So we're gonna go all the way back to Genesis 1. It's the first page of the Bible. It's easy to find. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our what? To be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his what? In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There is a vision of wholeness that's laid out in Genesis 1. You are created in God's image. Now, you have fractures, but that's not the whole story because you're created in God's image. Does this make sense to anybody? All right, so what's it mean to be created in God's image? Well, God says you get to reign over the fish and everything. I don't know, you know, maybe that's really cool to you. Not so cool to me. I'm not so good about reigning over the things that scurry along the ground. I tend to run away from them. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? I want to suggest to you, if you want to know what it means to be created in the image of God, look in two places for clues of the Bible. First is Colossians 1. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the fullest representation of God. You wanna know what it means to be created in God's image? Read the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Because Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, is the perfect image of God. So what do we know about Jesus? Well, this isn't Sunday school time, so I'm just gonna give you the answers. Here's what I know about Jesus. He's a compassionate man. Here's, a, here's what I know about Jesus. He has his arms wide open for the last, the least, the lost. Here's, about, here's what I know about Jesus. He has lunch, dinner, feasts with sinners. He says, I'm here for the sick people, not the well people. Here's what I know about Jesus. He's a loving man so much so that he died for me and this whole stinking world. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. That's what your destiny is. You want to create it in the image of God to live life like Jesus lived. Compassionate, healing, accepting, loving, transforming this world. The other passage, 1 John 4, you know what that one is? That's the passage that says God is love. So to be created in the image of God is to be created in the image of love. You are created to love and to live life like Jesus. That's what it means to be a whole coffee cup. That's what it means to take these fractures, whether they're apparent or not, and have them changed and reduced and transformed into wholeness and beauty. 
See, a lot of us, I think, think that to be transformed in the image of God means that we get a big, white, bushy beard and we can shoot lightning bolts out of our fingertips and anybody that we don't like, we can just go, bam, don't have to deal with that person anymore. Bam, don't have to deal with that person anymore. You know what Jesus did? He loved those people and actually let them crucify him. So, Hebrews 12.1 says uh, this. Therefore, this was in the pre-message video, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every what? Weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. You see, weight and nets and things that trip you up only matter if there's a race you have to run. And the race you have to run is to being pulled into the image of God. Is this making sense? Sin is not something that you just have and you feel shame about. Sin are the things that hold you back from being transformed into the whole image of Jesus Christ and a perfect loving image of God. Sin is not this thing that we're like, man, I guess I have this, this, this brokenness and I'm, maybe I'm not so great of a person. I've shattered or I have this, this hairline fracture that no one can see. Sin is about that thing that, re, that, re, that retards and slows down the place that God is trying to pull you to of wholeness. So if that's the case, I'm like, sign me up to talk about the seven deadly sins because I don't wanna slow this process down. I wanna be more loving I want to be a person that lives out the life that Jesus lived. And I believe with all my heart that that's the vision that God has for me and for all of us. And if there's anything in my life that's slowing that down, I want to know it, I want to name it, and then I want to get it out of my life. That's why we're going to spend the time talking about it. So we're going to turn now, and I want to talk about the actual specific a sin. We're going to go through one of these a week, except I think we're, we actually have one sin too many. Hard problem to have. Um, but we're going to talk about gluttony today. Uh, there's no particular order to the, to the seven. They've changed over time. And I just picked gluttony, which uh, I think will become apparent why in just a, a little while. So can we actually bring up the lights a little bit more, Nora? Because People might want to write some of this down. Thank you. Um, I'm going to give you a couple definitions of gluttony because gluttony is kind of a, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a hard sin to talk about. It's not something that we talk about all the time. You know, lust is always big on the church's radar screen. Like we liked, lust is easy for the church, you know. Um, but uh, some of these sins, like the church is kind of like, oh, wait, that's a sin? I didn't realize that. Gluttony. So the first definition of gluttony, and I just found this stuff in some of the things I was studying this week. Uh, gluttony is habitually using food for one's own excessive, immediate, and tangible pleasure. Now, just a, a quick word. It's, it's tempting to turn these into metaphors and go like, well, gluttony is not really about food. It's about an attitude of the heart. Well, that really gets into the, actually the, the area of pride. And what I've chosen to do is say, no, we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna talk about it really bluntly and really honestly. So this is about food. Habitually using food for one's own tangible, excessive, and immediate pleasure. 
So there's a couple words that just stand out there. Let's just be really honest and be really open about it. Habitually is, is, is a key word there. The, the seven deadly sins are not something that, oh my gosh, I did it one time, so I have a serious problem with gluttony. No, it's not necessarily the case. I had an amazing meal Friday night, you know? Two-hour meal with friends. We ate a lot. We drank wine. We had dessert. I do that maybe once a year. That is not an example of gluttony. You got, you know, that one day a week that you go out and you indulge yourself. That does not mean you have a problem with gluttony. Habitually using food for something that gives you tangible and immediate, I can't wait, I need uh, I need to feel good about myself. You understand that eating is a physiological act, that when you eat enough of some kind of foods, that the pleasure centers in your brain go off. And it's almost just like having sex. Like there is tangible, physiological things that happen to you. And you feel good when you eat some kinds of food. Doing that over and over again, especially if you're doing that instead of feeling pain that you should be feeling is a problem and could lead you into deeper problems. Um, another breakdown, three ways to think about uh, gluttony is if you eat food too hastily, too greedily, or too much, or too little. These are warning signs, right? What does that mean? Uh, too hastily is literally like you just sit down and the shovel, like, like I eat really fast, right? The only person I know that eats faster than me is Mark McNeese. Like we both eat really fast. And a lot of times just we're in a hurry, we, we're having a conversation, we don't wanna talk with food in our mouths or whatever. But there's sometimes when you you are just so consumed with getting the food into your mouth. It's not about a bigger purpose. You just put it in there. You don't savor it. You don't appreciate it. It's just going in. That's too hastily. Too greedily, this really gets into some brass tacks. I don't know. Maybe this makes people uncomfortable. Made me uncomfortable, right? Too greedily is when like, okay, I really like tacos. If I sit down at a table and there's only two tacos left, and I am gauging, like, how am I going to get both those tacos and keep, like, that person over there from getting the taco? That's too greedily. If I'm just like, I don't know, I don't know who's going to get that last, you know, cupcake, but their name is going to rhyme with Eric Case. No one else is getting that last cupcake. That's too greedily. Now, interestingly, because we live in a connected world, I want to suggest something else. Too greedily is also eating with no regard to the wider view of the world. What I mean by that is that sometimes we choose what we want to eat and we know that certain things perpetuate certain unhealthy parts of our world. You know, whether it's like too much meat um, or whether it's, uh, we know that what we're eating has been maybe um, obtained at a cost to another people's culture. And we go, you know what? I don't care. I want what I want, and I want it now. That's too greedy. And then lastly is too much, right? So that is just like, man, get out of my way. Um, I'm just, this is a laundry list of all the things that, that make Eric, like, you know, tick in terms of food. Like ribs, I'm just like, 
get out of the way. Like, just too much, right? But I want to pause on this for a second because in this sense, it's very easy to say, and I'm sorry, this might be a little bit uncomfortable. It's very easy to sit around and look at certain types of people and the way they appear physically and go, that person has a problem with gluttony. And look at another person who has a different appearance and go, well, that person obviously does not have a problem with gluttony. Um, just hear me. It is not a sin to be overweight. It's not. Right? Gluttony is, in a sense, about your heart and how you view food. And if you view food wrongly, you can eat too little food and still fill the check marks of like, I am not looking at food in a way that God has designed. Like real quick, like just keep in mind, if you've ever read the Gospels, what is Jesus doing all the time in the Gospels? He's eating. Jesus loved food and he loved to have feasts. But there's a healthy way to have them and an unhealthy way. Um, now see, I think that gluttony is a, uh, is a particular burden for the, for the West, for North Americans. Gluttony is a particular burden for affluent people to carry. And look around this room. If you are in this room and breathing, compared to the rest of the world, you are an affluent person. We can buy what we want. We can buy as much as we want. We can buy the unhealthiest food that we want, and we can consume as much as we want. I can't speak for people uh, specifically, but the times that I have been to Panahashel, Guatemala, I don't see a lot of gluttony. This is our burden to carry, right? So I want to get really real for just a few minutes because I want to tell you what I, what I said about the seven deadly sins being not about what's out there, it's what's in here. I have a big problem with gluttony. I do. Now, again, you can look at me and you'd be like, no, 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 no. But those checklists I read off this week when I stumbled across them, and that was a mirror staring me back in the face, okay? And I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna show you exactly how this plays out in my life. So you wanna, you wanna see the hairline fractures in my, in my life? You wanna see my shatteredness? Here it goes, okay? And this might be tempted you might be tempted to giggle at this, and some of it is kind of funny, and I can laugh at it, but this is serious stuff for me because I know what it costs my soul. I know what this costs me, all right? So uh, my first issue, uh, again, just being really real, is uh, I love salsa, right? And unfortunately, what usually goes with salsa is chips, Thank, uh, thank heavens for Costco, right? Chips and salsa, man. Oh. Open bag. Of, and I'm, I'm sorry, Frontera Chipotle salsa. This is simultaneously like God created this and the devil was like, yes, put that on there because people <laughs> were... Like I'll eat, this, I'll eat myself sick with this stuff, okay? Yeah, like giggle and laugh, but I'm not lying. Okay, um, I'm just gonna keep going, all right? Because this is not pretty stuff. Um, almonds. Okay, but I was like, oh, it's a nut, right? It's healthy. 
almonds, uh, Costco. Let me tell you how this gets me. I stress eat. I stress eat. Life starts to squeeze me. And rather than feel the pain or do something healthy with anxiety, I reach for this, or I reach for this. You know, one time I was going on a, like a, like a 48-hour church trip retreat thing, and it was designed to deal with issues of race and cross, cross-cultural relationships. And they pe- paired you up with someone from another ethnicity that you didn't necessarily know to talk about the, the blood and gut issues of race. So I was on a bus for 48 hours with an African-American worship leader. We kind of knew each other, but, the, but I was nervous. And we got on a bus in Chicago. and We drove all night long down to Birmingham, Alabama. And my wife, we had to buy snacks. And my wife had bought me some roasted almonds, a bag probably a little bit bigger than this. And as we sat on that bus and we started watching movies about race and started having dialogue, I, had, I just had the bag sitting beside my hip and my hand just started going in that bag. And all night long, I ate the whole bag of almonds at one sitting. And I was sick to my stomach the next day. But I'm not gonna tell anybody, right? Because it's embarrassing. But I eat myself sick with this stuff. And all the time, my brain is saying, eat more, eat more. This is good. This is good. Eat more. And then four hours later, I'm like, oh, what have I done? That's the way this stuff works. I'm going to go just maybe a couple more things, okay? Oh, please. Please. All right. So Frosted Flakes, we were talking in my family. We were talking to the kids. We were like, what kind of, what's your favorite cereal? And our kids, we were all talking. I was like, man, Frosted Flakes or Cap'n Crunch, favorite cereal. But I told myself, this was just a few days ago, I told myself, I told Shana, my wife, something she had never known before. And I said, you know, every once in a while, someone would either give us some Frosted Flakes or we'd bring some into the house. And um, what I would do is I, Shana goes to bed and I usually would go to bed later than her. So I'd have, have a bowl of cereal, right? Except I don't have one bowl of cereal. I have two bowls. And sometimes I have three bowls. And sometimes I have four bowls. And this is not a 13-year-old boy that's doing this. This is a 30-something-year-old adult man that can't control his eating habits. And something in my brain is saying, man, have some more of that sugar. Boy, it's good, it's good. That sugar's so good, that sugar's so good. You know, oh, and then you drink the milk when it's like, you know, when it's all got the sugar in it. And then I wake up the next day sick to my stomach, can barely function, right? And the last thing real quick is wavy lays. I don't know why wavy lays taste better than ruffles, but they do. And this was interesting because this is an instance where um, uh, it was early on when we first moved down here and, and um, it was about the first year or two I lived down here and, and we had a staff retreat. This, this is about seven years ago. E3 staff was in a really rough place, lots of tension, uh, and I went to Mark and I was like, we gotta go away as a staff and just spend some time together. He's like, okay, put it together. So I arranged the staff, arranged the, the retreat. I came up with a curriculum and a schedule and we went down, all these people, but the tensions were high and I felt like I was on the hot seat because I, I you know, advocated for this. And we sat in the first night, we were just watching a movie and I had a bag of these because everyone just went shopping. We just bought a bunch of junk food. And I just sat watching this movie and I just started eating. And I ate the entire bag at one sitting. 
and one of my colleagues, he saw it. And, and he just, he tapped me on the shoulder. He said, dude, what are you doing? And yeah, it's kind of funny, but yeah, it's not funny. So that's me. That's me. And I'm getting better at this stuff. But I have a problem with gluttony. It's got a hold on my soul. And I am determined not to become, to not let that be my destiny. Because God has something bigger for me. So I want to ask you, I want to, I want to, I want to kind of push on you now. I want to read to you the, these three questions that I read that kind of made me sit up and go, oh, okay. And um, the questions are arranged in such a way that if you answer no to these questions, like I'm just saying, you might want to just kind of take a gander. Um, first question, am I eating and drinking in such a way that contributes to my overall health and well-being? Because I can guarantee you, like it's not, I'm no nutritionist, but five bowls of Frosted Flakes at 10 o'clock at night are not doing my body any good. Am I eating in such a way that contributes to my overall health and well-being? If you answer yes, awesome. Second question, am I eating and drinking in such a way that my, um, that my, that elevates others' needs over my desires? This gets at the greedy thing. Like you're sitting down at a table and you're like, no matter what, I'm gonna fight somebody for that last taco, I swear. Or you are willing to say, you know what? Someone else can have it. I don't know, maybe it's Bluebell ice cream for you. Anybody, Bluebell? Mm. Can you eat with an awareness of like, man, sometimes my diet, I need to address my diet because it's destructive to the world around me. Or do you go, no, I'm gonna eat what I wanna eat. And they can just deal with it. Last question. Am I eating and drinking in such a way that makes my body a willing partner in my ministry? A couple weeks ago, we talked about service. Everybody here has a place to serve. Everybody can, you know? Find your place to serve. But you need to realize that you have a body that needs to do that serving for you. You know, this is my reality. When I was in my 20s, I could stay up on a Saturday night. I could drink what I wanted to. I could eat what I wanted to. I could roll into church at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning. I could play the guitar and I could sing and you would not know the difference. But when I hit my 40s, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I do acknowledge that my body is a partner in my ministry. So I had to change the way, I had to work on my diet and change the way I eat because I'm like, you know what? My service, my singing, my, my playing, my preaching, my teaching, my presence with people is a physical thing and my body needs to be in sync with that. So I need to eat in such a way that is, that is true to that. So do with what you will those three questions. Now, um, I'm gonna invite the band up and as they're coming up, we're gonna to move towards communion. I know we're running out of time. And I just wanna end uh, this way. What I want you to know is if, is if I've said something out here and you're like, you know what, that's me. I have a problem with gluttony. Here's what I want you to know. It's okay. Everybody in this room has a fracture and a brokenness. You are no different 
take off your mask and say, this is a thing. That's what I want you to know. And here's also what I want you to know. God loves you. He loved me when I was eating myself sick. It's not about his love and his acceptance because brothers and sisters, he loves you right now in the midst of your junk, okay? This is what he wants for you. But he loves you like this. He's like, everybody's gotta start somewhere. Here's what I want you to do though. If you think that you have a problem with gluttony, I would suggest to you that you consider fasting. You see, the church didn't just develop seven deadly sins. They also developed these things called seven virtues. And the seven virtues are designed to help people with the seven deadly sins. And one of the seven virtues and one of the tools that we've been given is fasting. Fasting just helps you break the hold of things that get a hold of you. But what's also interesting is that fasting helps identify what those things are in the first place. If you think you have a problem with eating chips and salsa, I suggest that you try to fast from chips and salsa. If you don't know how the chips and salsa got back in your pantry after you decided to fast, if you don't know how the chips and salsa got on your table after you decided to fast, after the chips and salsa got in your mouth after you decided, then you might have a problem with chips and salsa. So if something nudged you today and you're like, man, I don't know, try it. And it'll tell you real quick if you have a problem. It's just that simple. Now, um, four things about fasting. I think they popped up there for a second. I don't know what's going on with my mic. This is the type of thing you surrender to. You don't white, white knuckle your way through this. The goal of this is not to say, man, I'm gonna do it, so watch me grit my teeth through this. The way you do this is to say, man, I can't fight anymore. I have a problem and I need help from God and I need help from my brothers and sisters in, in Christ. Second thing, don't invite failure into your house. Everybody heard Mark say that? That was one of, the, that thing has always resonated with me. If you have a problem with Bluebell ice cream, for heaven's sake, don't buy Bluebell Blue Bell ice cream and think that you're gonna be the person that can resist having the Bluebell ice cream in your freezer. Don't invite failure into your house. Third thing, get accountability and help. This is where it gets really uncomfortable. You might have to ask somebody, man, can you, can you go to the grocery store with me and don't let me buy this? And is it awkward and is it embarrassing? Yeah, because we all wanna pretend that we don't need the help, but we do. And then the last thing, change your routine. You know, if you stress eat, Try to change your routine where you deal with stress more appropriately. If you eat late at night, go to bed earlier. Put it all on the table and go, I don't care what it takes. I'm gonna break this thing. <laughs>